Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now going to cover in this audio 2 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 18. I am going to call this section, Paul Defends His Ministry. This section begins a section of 10, 11, 12, 13, four chapters in which Paul is a little bit more severe than he's been in the previous chapters. And so many people think that this section of 2 Corinthians contains the actual severe letter that Paul had written earlier and somehow got put into the book. I'm going to assume it's the same. That is, it is not the severe letter. It's the same letter as 2 Corinthians. But we do notice a change in tone here. In the last chapter, chapter 9, Paul talked all about cheerful giving as he tries to raise money for his collection for the poor saints in Jerusalem. So now we have a change in topic. We go to chapter 10, verse 1. Paul says this, Now I, Paul, make a personal appeal to you by the gentleness and graciousness of Christ. I, who am humble among you in person, but bold towards you when absent. Now Paul here begins a spirited defense of his ministry against his false opponents. Now I'm going to just call the opponents the false opponents. These, these people could be Judaizers. They could be Gnostics. They could be Orthodox Christians who are just arrogant and stomping on Paul's church, jealous of Paul. Who knows? Well, I'm just going to call them Paul's false opponents. The NIV Study Bible says that the first nine chapters had a mild tone, as we have already seen, but now it appears that and now it appears that a majority of Christians have been won over to Paul. So once he's got them on his side, now he's going to turn around and take on his opponents. And that makes sense. That's why I think the last four chapters are part, an integral part of the letter of Second Corinthians. Now, when Paul says, I, was, I who am humble among you in person, but bold towards you in absent, he's also sarcastically referring to his opponent's charges against him. They say, oh, he's humble in person. Later on, we'll see a lot of speculations as to what Paul actually looked like, but apparently he was not, he didn't look like Cary Grant, and he didn't speak like Martin Luther King. He was humble in speech and humble in person. But he was bold towards you when absent. Now, being bold was absent. So let's see what he says here in 1 Corinthians 4 in the previous letter. 1 Corinthians 4, verses 18 through 21. Now, some are inflated with pride as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will know not the talk, but the power of those who are inflated with pride. See, Paul's saying, I'm coming after these guys. I'm going to deal with them in person. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you want? Should I come to you with a rod or in love and spirit of gentleness? Well, there's some bold talk. But it's when Paul was absent and writing a letter, but he wasn't in person. And so the false opponents of Paul were saying, yeah, he writes some really terrifying letters, but he's not here to back them up. When he does come here, he's a wimp. Now, Paul makes his personal appeal to the Corinthians by the gentleness and graciousness of Christ. Now, you see, here is a hard thing that people have to do. You have to be gentle and gracious in Christ. But then when you're dealing with opponents, sometimes you've got to be Rambo. And it's a little bit hard to combine those two things. If you look all through the Gospels, Jesus himself was gentle and gracious. But look how he dealt with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs, broods of vipers. When he was dealing with the Sadducees, he overturned the money changers, temple in the, in the, the money changers table in the temple. So we need to be very clear and not to mistake a minister of the gospel's gentleness and graciousness, graciousness as weakness. And uh, on the other hand, we shouldn't mistake a leader in the gospel's harshness toward wolves and people who would hurt the flock. We shouldn't interpret that as lack of love. 
I remember when dealing with hyperpreterist heretics, the first defense mechanism they would use is, you're not loving, you're not loving, you're not loving. And finally, I got so fed up with it, I wrote an article and put it up on the, it was accepted by the uh, Preterist Archive, which at the time was a hyperpreterist website mainly, but it's now become Orthodox Preterist, thank God. But I put the article up and... And the name of the article was why it is perfectly okay to say naughty things about hyperpreterists. Because they're heretics. You have to use hard language when you're dealing with opponents, just as Paul did. But I can't tell you how many times people would say, Dan, you're not loving. You're not loving. And I got so fed up with it, I finally wrote that article. And in in that article, I said, let me please quote Ike and Tina Turner. Uh, Excuse me, Tina Turner. Let me quote her. What's love got to do with this? And somebody who was engaged in the middle of the hyperpreterist controversy in his church as his church was being blown to bits by it, read that, and I heard reported to me later, just broke out laughing because he knew the techniques, the, the methods that these people used. You're not loving. Well, Paul was gentle and gracious, but he was strong, too, as you see here, as in, when he starts talking about, well, I've already read you 1 Corinthians 4, what he said about his false opponents in this chapter and in this section of scripture he's going to say some other pretty tough things about them and i'm sure somebody could accuse paul saying well you're just not loving well you know your rhetoric depends on who you're talking with you're gentle and kind when you're dealing with christians and people who want to know the truth but people who want to destroy the truth you come after them with a hammer here's some scriptures about gentleness of god Isaiah 40, verse 11, he protects his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them in the fold of his garment. He gently leads those who are nur- that are nursing. Matthew 12, 19 through 20, this is referring to Jesus. He will not argue or shout, and no one will hear his voice in the streets. He will not break a bruised reed, and he will not put out a smoldering wick until he has led justice to victory. And of course, what that's referring to is Jesus's humble state in his ministry he wasn't leading armies and he wasn't conquering and destroying enemies and so forth he was a mere carpenter's son going around teaching the gospel now however even in that weak state as i pointed out earlier he did blast the pharisees and the sadducees but he wasn't carrying on a scorched earth campaign as the leader of an army and notice he says he will not put out a smoldering wick until he has led justice to victory. That implies that at the time when he wins his ultimate victory, there might be a little bit of wicks being put out by Jesus. But at any rate, enough of that. That's, that's a very, I've gone through this. This is a tough thing that Christians have to decide is when do you hold them and when do you fold them? When do you hold your opponents accountable and when do you just let them walk away? It all depends on who's being hurt and who's being helped. And I will say this. A lot of times people will justify harsh tactics all in the name of we're just protecting the flock. Yeah, I've been I've been kicked out of a meeting after driving 70 miles on a bus in China. Got there, had this big meal. Oh, you're not going to speak to this group that you this college group that you were asked to because your doctrine's not correct. We're protecting the flock. So that can that can be a problem, too. We go to Second Corinthians 10, verse two. I beg that when I am present, I will not need to be bold with the confidence by which I plan to challenge certain people who think we are behaving in an, in an unspiritual way. Now, you see, Paul is no wimp here. He's saying, I'm coming after these guys, so you better get ready for it. The NIV says that when these people think that Paul is behaving in an unspiritual way, the NIV translates it as these people who think that we live by the standards of this world. So behaving in an unspiritual way is by the standards of this world. Now, what might he what might he do as he actually comes to Corinth? 
and starts to confront his opponents. I wish I could have been there to see this, actually. Well, John Gill said he could strike somebody dead. Well, now, I think that's a little extreme, Brother John. <laughs> John Gill says he might blind one of them. John, please. Or he might deliver them to Satan. I think that's closer to it. He could probably get the Corinthian church behind him to kick them out, excommunicate them. And whatever he did with his opponents, he had to have the backing of the Corinthian church to do it. And, of course, excommunication requires the consent of the church. And so I think that's what he was talking about. I mean, we're going to kick, we're going to, I'm going to deal with these people with you at my back. Practically speaking, he needed to have the Corinthian church behind him. And as a matter of church government, because church authority is consensus authority within the local church. Remember the third step in church discipline? Tell it to the church, not to the elders, not to the pastor, but to the church. He had to get the Corinthian church behind him, and then he could kick these guys out. And I'm sure that's what he planned to do. Now, when these opponents of Paul said he was acting unspiritually, Paul was actually acting in just the opposite way, 2 Corinthians 1.12. For this is our confidence, the testimony of our conscience is that we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially towards you, with God-given sincerity and purity, not by fleshly wisdom, but by God's grace. So Paul's conscience was clear. He had acted with perfect, honorable intentions toward the Corinthians. You know, you wonder what these faults opponents of Paul were accusing him of. What were they accusing him of? Having a shacking up with the secretary? I don't think so. Perhaps making money off of him? Well, no, because uh, he wasn't doing that. He refused to take money from him, so I don't know what they, how, what they thought they were accusing Paul of. They probably were accusing him of being arrogant because he was claiming to be the apostle who started the church, which of course was true, but they say, see here, he's, he thinks he's a big shot. So you were following Paul, you are of Paul, but we are of Cephas because we think he knows more. He's a little bit more legalistically inclined. We are of Apollo because he's more rhetorical. He, he He's behaving unspiritually because he's claiming too much, too much authority in the Corinthian church. I suspect that's what they were getting at. John Gill says that these people that were opposing Paul did this, quote, threaten the weak and the timid when present, to bluster when absent, and to be very obsequious in the presence of the strong and courageous. Well, that sounds like your typical church disturber. Second Corinthians 10.3 For though we live in the body, we do not wage war in an unspiritual way. Now, they had just accused Paul of acting in a fleshly way, an unspiritual way, and Paul says, okay, I admit I'm a human being in the flesh, but uh-uh, that doesn't mean I'm acting in a fleshly way or an unspiritual way. The NIV says, as the world does, I'm not acting as the world does. Although he walked in the flesh physically, he didn't fight in a fleshly matter. He didn't use physical worldly weapons, as he's going to mention in the next verse. Walking in a physical body makes one weak, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown says, but waging war in a spiritual way makes one strong. So let's see how Paul fought, not physically but spiritually, verses 4 through 5, 2 Corinthians 10. Since the weapons of our warfare are not worldly, but are powerful through God for the demolishing, for the demolition of strongholds, we demolish arguments and every high-minded thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God, taking every thought captive to obey Christ. Now that's some bold words when you consider that Paul has no seat of philosophy in any school of thought back then. He was just a wandering itinerant preacher, but it just shows how absolutely confident he was in Christ. And I love reading him and, and his, I love Paul's confidence because, my gosh, there's so much opposing Christianity in the world today that sometimes you get overwhelmed with it. Paul says, no, nah, we're going to take them down. We're going to take all these high-minded people, these, these, as the NIV says, these pretentious people, the King James says, these, these reasonings, these opinions, these, these 
false philosophies, we're going to take them down. Take them down to the obedience of Christ. <laughs> High-minded thing, and that might be a reference to those in Corinth who love pagan Greek philosophy. And he says, we're going to take these philosophers down, these phony philosophers. But whatever it is, this is one of my favorite verse because I've spent most of my life in the university world and I've heard a lot of Antichrist opinions, so many that I can't, they're, they're, numer they're multitudinous. And I just keep thinking about this verse. Ah, but we're going to demolish those arguments. We're going to win. I don't go around reading Hal Lindsey and Tim LaHaye and all about the end of the world. No. I like to read Paul here. We're going to win. We're going to take these high-minded philosophies down. We're not going to run with our tails between our legs waiting for some mythical pre-tribulation rapture. We're going to win. Now, Paul says the weapons of his warfare are not worldly. Well, here's, here's some examples of worldly methods. How about church politics? There is nothing. And you know, you think secular politics are bad. Try church politics. What an absolutely worthless way to, to waste your life in doing. How about instilling fear and using intimidation? If you don't believe what I believe and if you don't support me, we're going to expose the fact that you had an affair 10 years ago and we're going to ruin your marriage. How about slandering your opponents? Just make up something about them. We think that, uh, you know, that woman that was your secretary, we think you were shacking up with her despite there's absolutely no evidence that you ever, that the opponent ever, that the Christian ever shacked up with the secretary, but we're going to say it anyway. Or trying to use reason with those who won't use reason. You know, we just try to, we're going to reason our way to the truth of the gospel and the resurrection. Listen, there's nothing wrong with reason. I mean, but there's also something wrong with casting pearls before swine. And if you start reasoning with somebody in the scriptures, the Bible scripture says reason, reason in the scriptures. I forgot the reference right now, but it's in there. But if people are not going to listen, and you're just going to think you're going, you're going to reason their way into the kingdom, it ain't going to work. Here's an example of people who wanted to use worldly, fleshly methods to advance the kingdom. Luke 9, 54 through 56. When the disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, they saw some opposition. I think the Samaritans wouldn't receive them. James and John said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? <laughs> but he turned and rebuked them, and they went to another village. Oh, I have longed to call down fire on certain politicians in Washington. Wouldn't it be so fun, so great to see them fry? No, can't do that. It has to be the Spirit of Christ. Now, here's some applications in church history. Three great examples in church history where, the, where fleshly weapons were used in spiritual warfare and when both the fleshly weapons failed and the spiritual goal was not obtained. How about the Jews persecuting the early church? This, of course, Jesus predicted in the Olivet Discourse and in other places. He, he told his apostles, they're going to come after you when I die. And so the Jews, yeah, they tried to stomp out Jesus. Did they succeed? Well, what is over a billion Christians today? Judaism's shrinking every day, a little tiny religion. In fact, most of them don't even believe what the early Jews who killed Jesus believe. They've gotten so liberal. So that failed. The Jews didn't manage to kill the early church with fleshly methods. How about the Catholic Church persecuting the Protestants? Let me read you a great quote from Adam Clark. Popery could never by any power of self-revivescence, that means reviving, self-revivescence restore itself after its defeat by the Reformation. It had no scripture consecutively understood, no reason, no argument. In vain were its bells rung, its candles lighted, its autodafes exhibited. Autodafe, of course, is when they took heretics and burned them. In vain did its fires blaze, and in vain were innumerable human victims immolated on its altars. 
the light of God penetrated its hidden works of darkness and dragged its three-headed Cerberus into open day. Cerberus was a three-headed dog that guarded the gates of Hades. He was not especially friendly. And dragged its three-headed Cerberus into open day. The monster sickened that Cerberus vomited his henbane. Henbane is a poison that from a plant said to have psycho... What do you call it? Psycho... Not psychoanalytic. Psycho... It had. It was like LSD. But anyway, Cerberus vomited his henbane and fled for refuge to his native shades. Went back to hell where he came from. So that's Adam Clark and his flower away talking about how the Catholic Church failed to stop the Protestants because the Protestants were had the power of the Spirit behind them. How about the Roman Empire persecuting the early church? The Jews tried to persecute the early church using fleshly methods, torture and so forth. Nero did. The Roman Empire did. There was, If you read the church histories, there was ten. There was sporadic, but there were ten, and some of them were not empire-wide, but there were ten persecutions of the early church during the first couple of hundred years of the church before Constantine failed miserably. The church is still here. And now, of course, in America, every time you turn around, some smart head is saying, look at this, look at this. Vice President Pence prayed that America would come up with an answer to the coronavirus. Oh, we are so screwed. This is so terrible. He's praying. And the typical asinine attitude toward the church that you see in today's modern Western secular culture, they're going to lose. They're going to lose big time. The church of Christ is eternal. It is founded in the heavens. And despite all of our sins and our weaknesses, God is going to discipline us for our sins. He's going to rebuke us for our waywardness and he's going to establish us and we will live forever and ever and ever world without end so this is the kind of methods that paul's using spiritual methods to demolish strongholds demonic strongholds false ways of thinking he says that the weapons of our warfare are not worldly but are powerful got to be powerful because folks what's arrayed up against us is powerful our enemies are very powerful so we've got to be more powerful we go to 2 Corinthians 10, verse 6, and we are ready to punish any disobedience once your obedience has been confirmed. Now, how does Paul plan to punish his false opponents? Well, he could use the temporal sword. He could turn them over to the government. Well, obviously, that's not the answer. He could use censors against them. He could just get up and say, I am going to tell you of false opponents that you're full of it. Well, uh, I don't think so. I think it's more serious than that. Excommunication is another option that John Gill mentions, and I think that's the answer. He wants to excommunicate them, kick them out. But now notice, Paul did not have the right to excommunicate anybody unilaterally. Only the church did. Let's read 1 Corinthians 5, verses 3 through 5. Paul says this, For though I am absent in body, but present in spirit, I have already decided about the one who has done this thing as though I were present. Well, that sounds like Paul can kick him out. No, we read verse 4. When you, that's Y-O-U, when you are assembled, assembled, that means full church is there, excommunication, church court. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus with my spirit and with the power of our Lord Jesus, you turn, or turn, which means you turn that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. You do it. Now, notice that Paul says in the end of verse 6, once your obedience has been confirmed, once he has the Corinthian church behind him, then he can kick them out because it's the church going to be doing it. Doing it. He can't kick the, the false teachers out of the church on his own. He's got to get the Corinthians behind him because that's church government. The church has got to decide to kick somebody out. An apostle can't come do that. He doesn't have authority over a local church's internal deliberations. 
John Gill's got a, John Gill has got this thing about putting putting diseases on opponents because of Apostle's special power. He says that maybe Paul was going to come to Corinth and put a bodily bodily disease or death on the recalcitrant false opponents. That is nonsense, folks. Just because just because that happened with Ananias and Sapphira, that didn't mean the apostles went around killing people who were opposed to them. Now notice when he says, once your obedience has been confirmed, it sounds like he's still not quite sure that they're all behind him. Of course, from the first part of 2 Corinthians, the first nine chapters, we see basically that he's won them over. But he's going to confirm that once he gets down there, once your obedience has been confirmed. Once they're down there, he expects the majority of them to be obedient. We go to 2 Corinthians 10, verse 7. Look at what is obvious. If anyone is confident that he belongs to Christ, he should remind himself of this. Just as he belongs to Christ, so do we. Now, what Paul is probably referring to is these people who were claiming to be spiritually superior because they were of the Christ party. This is the NIV Study Bible's idea. I think they're right. 1 Corinthians 1.12, Paul says this. What I am saying is this. Each of you says, I'm with Paul, or I'm with Apollos, or I'm with Cephas, or I'm with Christ. Now, that's interesting because Paul and Apollos and Cephas are earthly people, sinners. But some people were saying, but we follow Jesus only. It's just Jesus. It's just Jesus we're following. So they're pretty spiritual, huh? So Paul's saying, well, if you think you're, it's just Jesus that you're following and you belong to Christ... Well, guess what? I belong to Christ, too. So don't be getting uppity on me. When Paul says that he belongs to Christ again, he's, once, he's having to do this boasting in order to fight the false apostles. Here's some scriptures that shows Paul's authority in Christ. His conversion, Acts 9, verses 3 through 4. As he, Paul, traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And, of course, that whole experience tells us that Paul had authority from heaven. Galatians 1.11, I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel preached by me is not based on human thought. So Paul says his gospel is superhuman. It's based on divine thought. Here's another verse showing Paul's authority in Christ. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 2 through 6. I know a man in Christ who was caught up into the third heaven 14 years ago. Whether he was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. I know that this man, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. Was caught up into paradise. He heard inexpressible words, which a man is not allowed to speak. I will boast about this person, but not about myself, except of my weaknesses. For if I want to boast, I will not be a fool, because I will be telling the truth. But I will spare you, so that no one can accredit me with something beyond what he sees in me or hears from me. So Paul is appealing to his heavenly vision. Sounds like a near-death experience or out-of-body experience, he's carried up to heaven, and he sees some wonderful stuff. And I think God did that because, you know, Paul had so much opposition that he needed to know, hey, I've seen it. I've seen the other world. I've seen heaven. I've seen Jesus face-to-face. And you can say what you want to say, or you can kill me however you want to kill me, but I know the truth. I know the ultimate truth. I know who created this world, and I know who has the methods, the means to save this world from its horrible sin. Now, Paul, at the beginning of verse 7, 2 Corinthians 10, says, Look at what is obvious. There's a translation issue here. The NIV says, You are only looking, you are looking only on the surface of things. Surface of things like oratory, personal appearance. The margin of the NIV is like the Holman Christian Study Bible that I have. Look at the obvious facts. Look at what is obvious. So either you're looking at the surface or look at what is obvious. Either way. Now, if it's 
if it's looking only at the surface of things, then what Paul is rebuking the Corinthians for is people looking at the meanness of his person, his poverty, his afflictions, his persecution, his lack of rhetorical ability. The false apostles are pointing to these things, and that's not what they ought to be pointing to. They ought to be pointing to his, his spiritual accomplishments. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 8, For if I boast some more about our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for tearing you down, I'm not ashamed. Paul seems sort of uncomfortable about boasting so much, so he has to say, look, I'm not ashamed about this. I'm doing it because I have to. If I boast some more about our authority, the NIV has, if I boast somewhat freely about our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up now and not for tearing you down. Now, what did Paul mean by that? Well, here's two options here. Paul could be guarding against the Corinthians thinking his harsh words were to tear them down. He's, he's sort of justifying his hard words in, first, in the first Corinthian letter, and in the severe letter, he's saying, look, I spoke real roughly to you, but it, I loved you. I was doing it so that, to stop you from hurting yourself. I wasn't doing it to tear you down. I was trying to build you up by getting rid of the sin in your life. That makes a lot of sense. You know, oftentimes those under authority take authority the wrong way. Like you tell your kids, you know, don't drive 100 miles an hour in a 35-mile-an-hour zone. And the kid says, you're trying to, you're just a killjoy. You're just an old boomer. You're just trying to take away my fun. Uh, don't go on the beach during the coronavirus epidemic in the middle of all those crowds. You're just an old boomer. You're trying to take away my fun. I want to drink and party and get sunburnt. And everybody's going to get the COVID-19 virus. We, I'm going to get it. You're going to get it. So there's nothing we can do about it. So let's just eat, drink, and be merry. To which I respond, yeah, and tomorrow you may die. Well, that's one option. Paul is trying to say, look, don't take my authority the wrong way. It's not for tearing you down. It's for building you up. Another, what Paul, another option as to what Paul would be referring to is this. He's implying that his opponents were tearing down the Corinthians. Hey, my authority was to build you up and not for tearing you down like the Corinthians are doing. He might have been making a backhanded comment to that, a backhanded reference to that. It could be he's doing both. He's saying, look, Corinthians, don't think I'm trying to tear you down. And by the way, Corinthians, the false apostles are trying to tear you down. Paul actually says it again, what he says here about tearing down and building up. In 2 Corinthians 13:10, three chapters later, this is why I am writing these things while absent, that when I am there, I will not use severity in keeping with the authority the Lord gave me for building up and not for tearing down. So don't get me wrong, Corinthians. Now, Paul says he's not ashamed in boasting about his authority in verse 8. I'm not ashamed, he says. But you still get the feeling that he's not comfortable boasting. Look at the next verse, verse 9. I don't want to seem as though I'm trying to terrify you with my letters. He's kind of backing up a little bit, you know. So look, I'm boasting, but I'm not trying to terrify you. How about all the boasting that he's done? Well, how about uh, in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 11, Paul says, I've been a fool for boasting. You forced me to it. So he seemed a little bit uncomfortable there. He said, you made me boast. I don't want to do it normally. In verses 3 through 6, he's been boasting in this chapter. Now, these verses don't show that Paul was reticent about boasting. These verses show that he's boasting. For though we walk in the flesh, this is verse 3 through 6, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, ready, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. That's pretty strong language. That can be boastful. 
So he's not ashamed to boast, but again, we need to balance that off with he's boasting because he has to, because he's been forced to by his opponents. We go to verse 9, 2 Corinthians 10. I don't want to seem as though I'm trying to terrify you with my letters, Paul says. Now what could be interpreted as Paul trying to terrify the Corinthians with his letters? Well, let's look at 2 Corinthians 2, verses 3-4. through 4. Paul says this, I wrote this very thing so that when I came I wouldn't have pain from those who ought to give me joy, because I am confident about all of you that my joy will be also be yours. For I wrote to you with many tears out of an extremely troubled and anguished heart, not that you should be hurt, but that you should know the abundant love I have for you. So Paul knew his letters could be interpreted as being painful and hurtful. Second Corinthians 7, 8 through 9, For even if I grieved with you my letter, I do not regret it, even though I did regret it since I saw that the letter grieved you, yet only for a little while. So in other words, Paul wrote the letter, that's probably First Corinthians, and, it, and he knew it was going to grieve the first the Corinthians because it was painful. Now I rejoice not because you were grieved, because but because your grief led to repentance. And of course all the chapters the letters the chapters in this letter, second Corinthians ten through thirteen, all of those chapters are pretty severe. First Corinthians four, eighteen through twenty one. Now some are inflated with pride as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I, I will know not the talk but the power of those who are inflated with pride. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. Of course, Paul did miracles, you know. I bet the false apostles couldn't do them. What do you want? Should I come to you with a rod or in love and a spirit of gentleness? So Paul is referring to all his previous dealings with the Corinthians, and he says, look, I wasn't trying to terrify you with all that bad stuff I was telling you. I wasn't trying to terrify you. I was trying to get you to repent, to fly right, to be children of Christ, obedient children of Christ. Second Corinthians 10.10, 10, for it is said, his letters are weighty and powerful, but his physical presence is weak, and his public speaking is despicable. So this is what Paul's opponents were saying, and from, from this we can deduce that Paul did not, did not look like Cary Grant. His physical presence was weak, and his public speaking was despicable. He didn't talk like Ronald Reagan or Martin Luther King with, a, with good oratory. Notice that God used him anyway, which is good comfort for those of us who don't look all that handsome. People like me talk like a redneck. You know, God can still use people like that. He used Paul in a mighty way. When he says his physical presence is weak, he's already mentioned that in verse 1 of chapter 10, which, we, which we've always covered, which we have already covered. Now, I, Paul, make a personal appeal to you by the gentleness and graciousness of Christ. I, who am humble among you in person, but bold towards you when absent. Humble meaning not speaking very forcefully or not looking very forceful. Physical presence weak, public speaking dis despicable. Now, I'm going to go through some interesting speculation that this stuff has nothing to do with making you closer to Jesus, all right? It's not going to make you grow one inch spiritually. But it is kind of interesting what people have said about Paul through the ages. Let's start with a, a early scholar, a writer named Nicephorus, and I don't know this guy, but John Gwill quotes him, quote, he had a small and contracted body, somewhat crooked and bowed. A bowed, excuse me, crooked and bowed. A pale face looked old and had a little head. He had a sharp eye. His eyebrows hung downwards. His nose was beautifully bent, somewhat long. His beard thick and pretty long. And that, as the hair of his head, had a sprinkling of gray hairs. Now, Clark has a different translation of Nicephorus. That was uh, John Gill's translation. Here's Adam Clark's. Quote, Paul was a little man, crooked and almost bent like a bow, with a pale countenance, long and wrinkled, 
a bald head, his eyes full of fire and benevolence, his, heart, his beard long, thick, and interspersed with gray hairs, as was his head. Well, Nicephorus was 13th century, long after Paul was dead, and Adam Clark says that his evidence is, quote, weak, incredulous, and worthy of no regard. Well, here's Lucian, the famous Roman poet. I forgot, he's in the ancient world. He said, when the bald-headed Galilean, he's quoting, he says this, when the bald-headed Galilean met me with his hooked nose who went through the air to the third heaven. <laughs> kind of picking on Paul's Jewish nose, it sounds like. Here's some other writers quoted in a scholar named Calmet who, was cited, who is cited by Adam Clark. Quote, Paul was a man of about three cubits in height. Folks, that's four foot six. And yet, nevertheless, touched the heavens. Four foot six. He was a little man, here's another writer, he was a little man, had a bald head and had a large nose, and picking on his nose again and his bald head. So this is how the tradition of Paul has come down through the ages. I saw a picture of a cartoon of Paul in Christianity today, and that's exactly what he looked like. Short, bent over, bald head with a crooked nose. We can infer that Paul was not a big guy because when he was at Lystra on the first missionary journey, and the Lystrians decided they were going to worship the two, as gods, they called Barnabas the Zeus, because Zeus was the big god, and Barnabas was big. Paul was Hermes. He was the smaller god, because Paul was small. At any rate, John, Adam Clark denies that all this stuff that's said about Paul has any basis in fact, and denies that what the false apostles were saying about Paul is true. John Gill sort of agrees with that. He says this, quote, that St. Paul could be no such diminutive person we may fairly presume from the office he filled under the high priest in the persecution of the church of Christ, and that he had not an impediment in his speech, but was a graceful orator we may learn from his whole history, and especially from the account we have in Acts 14.12 when the Lycaonians took him for Mercury, that's in Lystra, took him for Mercury, the god of eloquence, induced thereto by his powerful and persuasive elocution. In short, there does not appear to be any substantial evidence of the apostle's deformity, pygmy stature, bald head, pale and wrinkled face, large nose, stammering speech, etc., etc. These are probably all figments of an unbridled fancy and foolish surmisings. Well, that's kind of interesting, is it not? In my humble opinion, if you can throw out all of the speculations of church history, and just go back to verse 10 when Paul quotes his opponents saying his physical presence is weak and his public speaking is despicable. I can't imagine his opponents would say that unless there was some basis in fact for it to make it credible. So I'm going to assume that Paul had a weak presence and he wasn't a good orator. Now, of course, not being a good orator is, was bad back then to a Greek because they put a big premium on these rhetors, these rhetoricians who could go around and make beautiful speeches and win lawsuits and charge money to do it, and they would teach people how to do it, the meter, the poetry, and all this stuff. And then, of course, they charge for it. But Paul, as the NIV Study Bible puts it, Paul spoke in a matter that was plain, straightforward, and free from artificiality. And he also spoke free of charge. Second Corinthians 11, 7, or did, I, did, or did I commit a sin by humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you free of charge? Ooh, a good... Greek sophist would never give out his methods of rhetoric free of charge. He's going to charge for it. And if you did gave it out free of charge, that means you didn't have confidence enough to charge for it, and therefore what you're teaching is bunk. That was the charge against him. 
Let's see something else about his speech we can glean from 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 5. When I came to you, brothers, announcing the testimony of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. He's referring to the fact that he was not a Greek orator. For I didn't think it was a good idea to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. My speech and my proclamation were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a powerful demonstration by the Spirit, so that your faith may not be based on man's wisdom, but on God's power. So see, Paul admitted that he was not a great speaker. So it's not just the speculations of church history. And as far as Gill's argument that when Paul was mistaken, mistaken for Hermes, the god Hermes and Lister, well, Hermes was a good speaker. He was the god of eloquence, sure, but he was also small. And I think that's why they figured Paul was Hermes, is because he was small, not because he was a great orator. We go now to verse 11 in 2 Corinthians 10. Such a person, i.e. such a person as would be opposing Paul, such a person who would say that Paul's letters are weighty, but his physical presence is weak, and his public speaking is despicable, such a person should consider this. What we are in the words of our letters when absent, we will be in actions when present. Now, I've already read you the words of his letters when he says, I'm coming after you guys. And Paul is reaffirming that. He says, okay, you think I'm going to be a namby-pamby, wussy-pussy wimp when I show up in Corinth? I'm going to be just as mean and nasty as what I wrote in my letters, false apostles, so you better be ready for me. He's firing a shot across the bow of the false apostles. He's perhaps encouraging them to leave the church before he even gets there because he's saying, look, you know, if you leave, you'll save yourself a lot of trouble because I'm coming and I'm going to nail you. I'm going to blast you right between the eyes. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 12, Paul continues, For we don't dare classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. The some who commend themselves, of course, are his false opponents. But in measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves to themselves, they lack understanding. Now, some people say that Paul is speaking sarcastically here. For we don't dare classify ourselves with these guys. And I think they're right. As Gil Clark and Jameson Foss and Brown all say that. And I think they're right. We don't dare classify ourselves with these big shots. Now, Paul says when they measure themselves by themselves, they're using a worthless yardstick to judge themselves because they are worthless. And so they say, hey, I'm measuring myself up to a worthless standard. Therefore, I'm worthless. <laughs> Paul's not going to use that yardstick. He's not going to use the yardstick of these worthless false opponents who use powerful rhetoric and handsome appearance as the criteria by which they are judged in the effectiveness of their ministry. Paul is not going to do that. He's going to use something else. God. That's his yardstick. And more specifically, verse 13, the measure of that Paul uses to compare himself, to judge himself, is the measure that's mentioned in verse 13. We, however, will not boast beyond measure, but according to the measure of the area of ministry that God has assigned to us, which reaches even to you. In other words, Paul's going to boast by what he's done in Corinth. He says, I, my ministry is extended to Corinth. You can judge me based on what you see here in Corinth. But these false apostles don't have that because they didn't start the church at Corinth. They only have themselves. Oh, look at me. I'm a big shot. That's all they've got. They don't have the church at Corinth. They lack understanding, which is a polite way of saying they're idiots. Paul says they don't know what they're talking about when they compare themselves to themselves. Look at me. Look at me. Look at me. Now, when Paul says that his measuring stick is his measure that he his his was his area of ministry, which would include the Corinthians, that's the penultimate measuring stick. But the ultimate measuring stick is the Lord, because he says in First Corinthians one thirty one, in order that it, as it is written, the one who boasts must boast 
in the Lord. You must boast in the Lord. That's what Paul's doing here. All of his accomplishments, he mentions them to give himself credibility, but the re, but he never gives any himself credit. Even in his visions, he says, I'll boast about the man that had the visions, but I'm not going to boast about me who's weak, the man in the flesh who's weak. I'm not going to do that, but I will boast in the Lord. Second Corinthians 10, verse 13, We, however, will not boast beyond measure, but according to the measure of the area of ministry that God has assigned to us, which reaches even to you. And, of course, the area of ministry which God assigned to us would include the Corinthian church because his ministry had gotten that far on the second journey, Acts 18. Notice he's qualifying his boasting. He's only boasting because he has to. He has to defend himself against the false teaching. So he is boasting. He doesn't like doing it, but he's going to boast according to reasonable standards, his, his ministry and God. Now, when Paul says we will not boast beyond measure, he's probably referring to the false opponents who are boasting beyond measure because they're boasting about a church they didn't start. Look at us. Look at look at the people who are following us in Corinth. Paul would never brag about somebody else, else's work that he had not started. Now, when Paul says he will only boast according to the measure of the area of ministry that God had assigned to him, he's making a shot at the false opponents who are boasting beyond the area of ministry that God had assigned to them. He's complaining that they are intruding upon his area of ministry. I started the church, and here are these guys out there telling you, Corinthians, the way you ought to go. Now, this area of ministry that God had assigned to Paul, I'm assuming is Corinth. Some people say it could just be the, the Gentiles. I mean, not just, but would be include all of the Gentiles because Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, and the Corinthians were a part of that. I don't. That kind of weakens it a little bit. I think he's talking about the Corinthians. I'm not going to boast beyond... The Corinthians, I got the Corinthians I can boast about. So you false guys, buzz off. Get out of here. Second Corinthians ten fourteen. For we are not overextending ourselves as if we had not reached you, since we have come to you with the gospel of Christ. He says, we're, <laughs> we're not overextending ourselves. Again, he's referring to the false opponents who have overextended themselves by tromping on, trampling on Paul's legitimate area of ministry. In fact, I believe that that's why Paul was able to write such frank letters as 1 Corinthians, because they were his children. You can speak a little bit harder to your children than you can to strangers. So he said, I'm not overextending myself when I'm talking to you, Corinthians. I have reached you. My ministry has reached you with the gospel of Christ. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 15, we are not bragging beyond measure about other people's labors. Again, the implication is there are certain people in Corinth who are bragging beyond what they should, beyond what is proper about other people's, i.e. Paul's, labors. But we have the hope that as your faith increases, our area of ministry will be greatly enlarged. Now, Paul is saying, look, I am not going to do to these false apostles what they're doing to me. They're boasting about other people's labors. They're boasting about my labors. I'm not going to go to other people's churches and boast about what I've done in another church when I haven't done anything in another church. Well, that should be obvious. He's not going to do that. His main point in saying it was to show that the, the false apostles were doing that. Now, Paul says that as the Corinthian faith in Corinthians' faith increases, Paul's area of ministry will be, will be greatly enlarged. Now, here's a couple of options as to what he meant by that. John Gill says that once the Corinthians' many problems were over with, Paul would then have more time to minister elsewhere, especially in the regions behind Corinth. And the next verse tends to back Gill up on that. Verse 16 says, so that we may proclaim the good news to the regions beyond you. In other words, once you get your, once your faith increases, in other words, once you shape up, <laughs> once you do what I've suggested you do in the letter of 1 Corinthians, hey, I can quit worrying about you and then I can start preaching the gospel beyond you. And I think that's perf perfectly reason reasonable. I had another idea about this. 
when I first read it, I thought, Paul says, we have the hope that as your faith increases and you become a, a mature church, Paul's area of ministry will be greatly enlarged because the church itself, the Corinthian church, will be spreading the gospel. And since the Corinthian church was started by Paul, therefore the fruit that the Corinthian church gathers could be credited to Paul, if I can use that term. His ministry would be greatly enlarged through the ministry of his children, of his child, the Corinthian church. Well, whichever way it is, Paul has this hope, confident expectation of the future, that the Corinthian faith will increase and that good things are going to happen as far as the spreading of the gospel. Now, what regions beyond Corinth would perhaps he was referring to? Well, Spain, as the NIV Study Bible puts it, because Paul had intended to go to Spain. Romans 15:28. So when I have finished this and safely delivered the funds to them, I will visit you on the way to Spain. Visit the Romans on the way to Spain. That's Romans 15:28. Romans 15:24. Whenever I travel to Spain, for I hope to see you when I pass through, pass through Rome. So Paul's planning to go to Spain. That might be what he's referring to when he says, once you Corinthians get straight, I'm going to take the money back to Jerusalem. I'm going to get on a boat. I'm going to come back, go through Rome, and I'm going to head to Spain. I mean, that that brother never stopped thinking about the spread of the gospel. He was a fantastic apostle, a fantastic missionary. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 16. It's in the middle of a sentence, so let me read the end of verse 15. We have the hope that as your faith increases, our area of ministry will be greatly enlarged, verse 16, so that we may proclaim the good news to the regions beyond you, not boasting about what has already been done in someone else's area of ministry. Once again, he's taking a pot shot at his opponents who are boasting about Paul's area of ministry. Some people say it's not just Spain, but it could be areas in Greece south of Corinth, in the Peloponnesus, Adam Clark, like Sparta, for example, or it could be areas not just in Italy, not just Rome, but all of the Italian province. Who knows? The point is, Paul has got his eyes on the horizon once he takes care of the Corinthian problem. Second Corinthians verse chapter 10, verses 17 through 18, and we'll finish up this chapter. So the one who boasts must boast in the Lord. I've already read the verse in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 31, Paul says, as it is written, the one who boasts must boast in the Lord. He repeats that here in 2 Corinthians 10, 17. So the one who boasts must boast in the Lord. Of course, Paul is referring to all the boasting he's done just previous, but he's saying, hey, I'm boasting in the Lord. For it is not the one commending himself who is approved, but the one the Lord commands. Again, Paul's referring to the false teachers who are commending themselves. Look at me. I'm a big shot apostle. That when Paul says one must boast in the Lord... Here's a good quote from John Gill describing that, quote, not in himself, not in his outward circumstances of life or inward endowments of mind, not in his natural or acquired parts, not in his wisdom, knowledge, learning and eloquence, nor in his own righteousness, labors and services, much less in other men's labors, nor in his own sense of himself, nor in the opinion and popular applause of others, but in the Lord Jesus Christ. Nobody says it as good, says it as well as John Gill. A Christian should not even boast in the prosperity of his work. Gill says, all praise must go to God. Now, Paul is talking about commending. Of course, again, this is referring to the fact that churches back then had to have letters of recommendation, if you will, because they didn't know people. A lot of times they needed other people to vouch for their character and their ministry and so forth. Paul says, you know, look, if I come to you with a letter and say, hey, I'm, I'm a I'm I'm from God. Well, that's commending yourself. That's absurd. Nobody, whoever wrote a letter of recommendation for himself to for a job application, you don't do that. Somebody else has got to approve you and to commend you. And Paul says in verse 18, it's the one the Lord commends is the one who is approved, the one the Lord commends. 
somebody else commends, not yourself, but somebody else. Second Corinthians 3, verses 1 through 3, Paul says, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, like some, letters of recommendation to you or from you? No, he doesn't, he doesn't even need a, a human letter of recommendation. You yourselves are our letter written on our hearts, or recognized and read by everyone. You want a letter of recommendation? Corinthians, just look at your own church. That's the letter. So Paul, to summarize all this, Paul has committed himself all through 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, but his boasting about himself was always in the Lord. Ladies and gentlemen, we are now finished with 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Hope you enjoyed it. In our next chapter, chapter 11, Paul continues with his cheery ad against these false apostles. He lets them hold it for a whole another 32 verses. We'll take the first half of those verses in our next audio. Hope you stay tuned for that one. I hope you enjoyed this one. <laughs>